Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Actung, actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and today I'm joined by two very, very special guests. First of all, uh, John Lilly from the uh, People's Mosquito, and also Des Curtis DFC, former mosquito navigator, um, and we're just going to do a little bit of a number on the mosquito, really, and talk about Des's experiences in the Second World War, and also a little bit about what john is up to with this fantastic project because i'm sure there's not a person here in the uk who would not love to see a mosquito flying over our skies once again and john um, we're hoping it's going to happen absolutely and uh, we're making great progress james and um, thanks as well to veterans like des curtis uh, we're able to continue to tell their story and um, yeah we're up to producing the mosquito fuselage and to do that you need to make two molds but we might talk about more of that later on during this podcast but uh, no um, progress has been made to bring your british mozzie to our skies wonderful well you know amen to that uh, uh, and des you obviously joined the RAF in the second world war i mean what can you remember about the first time you saw a mosquito? Uh, rather unusually, it was the uh, 30th of December, 1942, when I was a boat fighter navigator and we did an emergency landing at night at RAF Acklington in Northumberland. Uh, the following morning, as we were taxiing around, we, we looked around and there were these new aircraft the first time we'd seen mosquitoes. There were five or six of us within view. And my pilot and I looked at them and said, my God, that looks a sleek beauty. <laughs> our, our turn will come to be able to fly in this lovely aircraft. And that was the first time we saw it. Wow, how amazing. But I mean, just very quickly, I mean, what about the bow fighter though? I mean, I've always been a, I've always thought it just looks very fit for purpose but but you've been in them and flown them in combat so you can you can put me right on that or um agree well the boat fighter navigator position is probably the apart from rear gunners is probably the most uncomfortable hostile <laughs> <Really>? environment <laughs> <laughs> uh, particularly with a, a vickers machine gun popped out of the cupola and every time you turn round to look backwards, you banged your face against the butt of this gun. Um, <laughs> now, it was a very uncomfortable aircraft to, to fly in, I have to say. Uh, and of course, when moving to the Mosquito, it was the difference between going from a Morris Minor to maybe uh, a Bentley or even a, an Audi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you do look at it, I, I mean, I always just think where the bow fighter just looks, looks sort of mean and kind of bristling with weaponry. But then when you compare it to the mosquito, there's there's no question about it that the mosquito just just looks very, very sleek, isn't it? Doesn't it? And there's a there's an old adage about aircraft that, that if it looks right, it's probably going to fly right. And I think that's certainly the case with the mosquito. 
But 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 John, how did you get involved with the mosquito project, the People's Mosquito? How did that come about? Uh, for myself, I mean, I I was I, I was I was born in Doncaster and grew up close to RAF Finningley, which many people may remember, and uh, it's now Doncaster Sheffield Airport. So um, you know, uh, in fact, my parents used to sort of I think half jokingly say, the the Vulcans are. Uh, training on the OTU was to wake me up in the late 60s and when they were doing their night flying exercises. So I guess aviation has been in the blood then sort of thing. But yeah, growing up, of course, we had the Battle of Britain at home air shows there, which were very famous. Huge crowds, huge crowds indeed. I mean, really, what what sort of numbers are you talking about? Gosh, I mean, I think they would see probably over 100,000 over a weekend. Goodness me. Yeah, REAP numbers, as it were. And I remember at the time, the economy would swell by a million pounds or people coming in and stuff. Uh, But no, so, you know, therefore you got to see the majesty of the Air Force, you know, and and also, you know, really appreciate. I I really got into World War II warbirds. And then later on in life, I was I was very lucky to become a volunteer aircraft restorer at the IWM at Duxford and uh, got to work on a number of aircraft like the Short Sunderland, which is still a, a very much a favourite of mine. For, and there's another podcast story, I guess, talking about that aeroplane. But um, no, I got to work on TA-719, which currently hangs in the roof of the, the superhanger. And, and I really got to appreciate the design, the, the fact it was wooden, Slack, like this as a sleek beauty. And I remember spending a week of vacation time preparing the, the, the aircraft for, for the paint it's currently in. And I guess I fell in love with it then, sort of thing, and, and got really to understand it. And then fast forward a number of years, uh, this love of World War II aviation, and also just understanding there was a, this something missing on the air show scene. The warbird community and the historic aircraft community is absolutely, we, we are in a, an absolute golden era of Spitfires, Hurricanes, you know, being restored. And, and even just Jane, uh, East Kirby uh, feels well, potentially another Lancaster. But there's one thing missing, the Mosquito. And when you look at the fact that she became the first multi-role combat aeroplane, as Des will tell from his history, because he flew two types of mosquitoes. Um, and almost, uh, and I think our late patron, Eric Winkle, Captain Eric Winkle, Brown Royal Navy, said you could give the mosquito any job and she would do it. Uh, and that sort of thing. Land so it on a carrier. Around, and land it on a carrier below the stall speed. Exactly. Yes, Exactly. And, and that was also to do with Desert story, which we'll come on to later on. That was all preparing for potentially an operation for the highball mosquitoes, which we'll come back to. But I looked around, it was missing. And there was also a bit of a, and I think we've moved on in Britain. There was a bit of a sense, maybe 10 years ago, oh, we can't make things anymore. We can't, we can't do things, we can't design things. And I, and I take very personal umbrage to that. And think, of course we can. But I looked to the Vulcan to the Sky model of raising around 25 million pounds or whatever it was to bring that Cold War beauty and, and how loved that aeroplane was. To see that the public really behind our heritage, really get behind remembering people like Des and that story and to, to live it by seeing things fly. So there you go. I brought all those elements together and um, and it's uh, we run a, a non-for-profit organ. It's a complete charity. We don't take any salaries. We try and turn every penny we raise into the aeroplane. And we've now raised three quarters of a million pounds. 
over 400,000 pounds worth of assets, including fuselage moulds and starting production on bulkheads and um, cockpit panels and the parts bin is growing like spinners, control columns, all these things, because it's just not on the shelf anymore. No. You know, you can find original things, uh, but then you have to overall to where we're in a standard. And uh, yeah, so it, it takes a lot of doing and uh, and it's all about spreading the word. And so again, yep. thank you for the invitation today because we're able to tell the story. No, 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 no. We're absolutely delighted to, to, to see both of you. And, and Des, I mean, tell me about how you came to join the... I mean, where, where were you born and brought up and how did you end up being in the RAF? I mean, obviously you volunteered, but how did that come about? I was actually born in the Guards Depot at Caterham in Surrey. <laughs> Amazing. Within the barracks. My father was, uh, at that stage, a senior NCO in the Irish Guards. Mm. Uh, my brother was an apprentice, RAF apprentice at Halton. Uh, and I tried to join the Irish Guards. Uh, but at 16, they took one look at me and told me to come back when I was 20. My father... When I told him that I was volunteering for the RAF, his immediate response is, what are you doing joining that ragtag mob? Because that was, <laughs> by his standards, lacked any form of discipline. However, once I was in the RAF and he'd seen me on parade, he did admit that we were nearly as good as the guards. So <laughs> well, that's all right then. I was forgiven. So I joined up when I was 17 in May 1941 birth certificates were waved past because as long as you looked intelligent and warm uh, there was a space for you let's not worry too much about a few months of so I became a man in May 1941 uh, at the interview I was uh, told I was going to be a navigator I wasn't given the option of being a pilot or anything and were you all right with that yes because all I wanted to be was in the RAF so if right. they said I was going to be a navigator I think they chose that because I'd done pretty well in geography at school. So they probably right. thought I knew how to read a map. Right. It was quite important in those elementary days. Well, yes, no GPS then. No GPS, none of those fancy ideas. It was a pencil and a ruler game. <laughs> and so that was it. And I went to initial training. When we got near to the end of that training, we were paraded and the officer in charge told us that they were looking for volunteers to fly in the Bowfighter. As I call your name out, you will stand to the left because you've now volunteered. Flying on a Bowfighter, the word fighter came into it. So there was really something then to aim for. I was only having been compulsory volunteered. Uh, then I was told I had to learn to be a wireless telegraphist or I could become a navigator. And I started this, what was in fact 19 months of training before I was fit enough to join a squadron. And I was very fortunate because part of that training was a very concentrated course on general reconnaissance, flying over the sea at low level, which was an art in itself. Of it course. There was nothing uh, uh, acquired, you had to learn hard experience and I did a course of three months at Blackpool which was probably the best training that I had over the whole period of training uh, learning how to look at objects from low level looking the way skies change 
learning how to read wind speeds by looking at the waves and all those things that were they were there naturally and I had to exploit them because this was the only way of finding your way around without out of sight of land without any of the G or other equipment that later became available to aircrew. So it's purely dead reckoning, is it? I mean, it's it's, it's dead you, reckoning with... You only learn that by practice and art. It really became yeah. became an art, yeah. Incredibly difficult. I mean, did you... I mean, was there a moment where you kind of struggled with it? Did you ever sort of think you were going to master it? Or, or was it something that you kind of started to get to grips with quite early on? Uh, I, I I always had to struggle with it because there was so much to learn. I'm sure. And that was only the, the, the hard task of learning so much. Um, yes. It didn't, it didn't frighten me. Uh, when we did this course, we were in a cabin. Part of the training we'd been in a cabin on a four-hour exercise of the cabin stimulated being in a cockpit of, and I'd come out of that absolutely soaked in perspiration with the sheer exhaustion of being tasked to I suddenly identify there were some ships below, suddenly realizing that the wind had changed direction while you, they had quite deliberately set you off to do some more work. And then they changed all the plot while you weren't looking. And it was that type of training because everything was unexpected. You had to be prepared to, to do the unexpected. So when I finally started to fly operationally, all of this came in part of my training, a natural way of carrying on my work. So the training, I mean, it sounds like the training was pretty thorough and pretty good. So I finished that training at uh, OTU. I went there in October 1942 and I finished in December 42 and then joined 235 Bowfighter Squadron. And our task was then doing reconnaissance work on the Norwegian coast. So we would fly in, if we were doing a single aircraft reconnaissance, we'd fly in onto a particular landfall and then turn south and cover maybe 40, 50 miles of coast, <clears throat> flying in and out of the leads, looking in every fjord for any type of, of vessel, military or civilian vessels. Um, and then flying back. And so you're doing this by obviously in daylight, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to see. On daylight, yes. Yeah. yeah. And this is part of Coastal Command, I'm guessing. That was Coastal Command entirely, yes. The and most underappreciated command of the RAF. Yes. Because we only came about because the Royal Navy didn't have any shore-based air aircraft to which they would take over that job, so they had to hand it over to the to Coastal Command. But the extraordinary thing was that we were still under the authority of the Royal Navy in deciding ultimately the targets. Conversely, we were not encouraged to attack land targets. That was the job of Bomber Command and Fighter Command and Second TAF. Coastal Command were entirely on the water and shoreline defences. Yeah. So low-level stuff, basically. Oh, yes, yes. So presumably you wouldn't fly over the North Sea at Leila, or would you? Yes, because are you trying to get under the radar? To, I mean, when you're flying across the North Sea to Norway, what sort of heights are you operating at? Well, you'd go out at about 500 feet, allowing that cloud base would allow you to do so. And then as you got within about 50 miles of the Norwegian coast, 
you would let down then to 30 feet. Wow. Wow. 40 feet. Wow. Feet, uh, to get out That's of the German just radar. Amazing. And, and, and flying at kind of 200, you know, 300 miles an hour at, at 30 feet off the sea is, I mean, that, that requires a huge amount of pilot and navigational skill, doesn't it? I tell you this, it's a most exhilarating feeling. Because <laughs> I bet. Then you really realise just what it was like to go fast in an aircraft because yeah. the, the sea came whizzing by you and you could even sometimes get caught by the spray the sea. There were other, other occasions, of course, apart from the reconnaissance, when if we saw uh, any targets there, then we, we would go out in formation. And right. our job was then to accompany the torpedo Hamdens or two torpedo bowfighters. We were providing yep. the, the flying alongside them to provide fighter defense for them. That was our main role in bowfighters. And then we came back from an air sea rescue uh, support trip one afternoon in March 1943 to be told that the adjutant wanted to see us and he said uh, you're leaving with the CO and three other crews to go tomorrow down to a mosquito conversion course and we immediately assumed that we were going to go convert onto a mosquito and then go back to Lucas, where we were stationed, right, to get rid of the bowfighter and carry on doing that job, but with this mosquito. That was the happy state in which we set off to do the conversion. <laughs> that was only when we completed the conversion and then found ourselves stuck in an isolated airfield in the north of Scotland with as many barriers as they could put up uh, to keep you away from the public that we realized that uh, it wasn't quite going to be like that. It was going to be a very dangerous mission, as the CO finally described it to us. Well, Des, I'm going I'm I'm to pause you just there on that cliffhanger, if I may, because, um, and, and, and turn, to, turn back to John, because, John, while, while Des is doing his low-level screaming across the North Sea to, to Norway in, in bow fighters and then getting ready to take on the Mosquito. What, what is the story of the Mosquito in the first place? I mean, how, how does this extraordinary aircraft, largely made of wood, come into being in the first place? I mean, it, 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 it's, it seems so unlikely when you kind of strip it back and think about it, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it went, went against the, the grain of the day, pardon the pun, um, because obviously we were getting into the... Um, the, the era of aluminium, everything is uh, monocoque design, like the Spitfire, you know, streamlined, riveted, and, and, and going back to wood almost felt like uh, we're going backwards to the World War One technologies. And that's certainly where a large people within the Air Ministry, as the MOD was called at the time, and, and the Ministry or the War Production guys really saw that. The Havilands basically were responding actually to a very uh, 1937 sort of Ministry of Publication for a, for a light, you know, twin-engine bomber. And the Havilands, with experience of other aircraft, like their beautiful Comet Racer, which we can all see, beautiful red one down at Shuttleworth Collection, for example. It's very worth a visit if you've never been to see that aeroplane. Again, a twin-engined, uh, very streamlined 1930s Art Deco design racer. And they'd also built an aeroplane called the Deavland Albatross, which was actually a, an airliner made out of wood so of course de Havilland's with their experience of building these aircraft out of wood streamlined 
um, particularly fast, thought that a light bomber would be the way forward. And the RAF had asked this particular specification just before the war, but the controversial bit was this unarmed piece that, you know, was going against the thinking of the day that all bombers needed armament. Yeah, but as we saw with the beginning of the defence of the Battle of France, before the Battle of Britain showed, you know, uh, bombers versus the uh, very highly experienced fighter pilots of the Luftwaffe were 109s, and some of them were cannon-armed, didn't stand a chance in daylight operations. So therefore, you know, uh, that led to Bomber Command going on to the night offensive, which is a whole history lesson in itself. But um, they pressed on with the design, and they found a fan within the Air Ministry called Air Air Vice Marshal Freeman. Yes, great man. And he really, great man, and often, I think, somebody who should be more applauded in history. I completely agree. Um, And, um, for example, he was heavily involved in the decision to put a Merlin in a muster. Yes, indeed. uh, Fighter. And, And on this, he really put forward for this mosquito to get, he could see the vision, he could understand it. And he also appreciated that it would bring in a whole new industry of people not being utilised at the moment, as in our furniture makers, our cabinet makers, our piano makers, etc. You know, whole skilled craftsmen in carpentry, for example, especially when many of these skills were focused on, you know, the more traditional industrial metallic type uh, industries. And it was known as, in pushing it, in the halls of Whitehall was known as Freeman's Folly. That was a little little inside joke they had at the time. And if he had a very heated meeting uh, with Lord Beaverbrook, who then was, a, I think it was the Ministry of War Production, wasn't he? Something like that. And um, he was told um, to uh, concentrate on the agreed production of aircraft at the time. Which I think was obviously Spitfire, Hurricane, Wellingtons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes, there were five of them, weren't there, that were agreed in to, to prioritise in 1940. Five priorities, so they got maximum production across the whole UK um, armaments industry. What he wasn't told was to scrap it, and that's what he took to carry on and sort of support a uh, an initial order of of uh, photo reconnaissance aeroplanes. You know, so he got this in through the back door and I think Beaverbrook wasn't entirely happy and they did traditionally get on. But once the test flying began and the RAF obviously were involved in that test flying programme as well as obviously Boscombe down, the, the, the sort of test guys down there, uh, it was very, very clear that they had something of a war winner on their hands. And then the rest, they say, is history. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. John, this is how you, um, Des rather, this is how you've come to to have your, um, to be suddenly sent up to Scotland with, with your mosquito for the first time. I mean, and, and you think you're going to be carrying on doing coastal command um, operations, but, but in fact, something else is lying in waiting for you. We were told by the CO that we would be conducting a very unusual operation in that we were going to do a low-level daylight attack on the German battleship Tirpitz, which was at that stage lying off Trondheim and within reach of uh, aircraft coming out of either Lucas or Sumbra in the Shetland Islands. Uh, very dangerous because the Bismarck itself uh, carried 110 anti-aircraft guns. And when you were flying straight at, the, at that ship, uh, you were a fairly easy target for those 110 guns. But the Tirpitz didn't stay in Trondheim. It then went off to Carfjord in the very north of Norway. The problem then was that it was just within range of the Mosquito to get there, but it couldn't get back from there. Flying from the Shetland Islands up to Carfjord in which was part of Altenfjord, uh, was a, a trip of about 950 miles. We had a range of about 1,100 miles maximum. So there was a problem of what to do with the aircrew air that survived, return journey to somewhere. The ideas that were put up to us, bearing in mind that we were isolated in our airfield air called Skitten, we were not allowed to communicate, talk, talk about the project, even in the mess. We could only talk about it in the ops room. The engineers didn't know what the target was. The station dentist that was there, he couldn't listen to any conversations that we had. So we then spent our time working out what the options were for our survival. But Des, I mean, how, I mean, when you were, I mean, unlike, unlike with 617 Squadron, where they were, they were, you know, you were asked to volunteer for this special operation, it, it sounds like that wasn't the case of you. You were just told you were going to, to be in this new squadron with mosquitoes doing this low-level operation. I would put it this way. The, our CEO, Hutchinson, Hutch as we called him, when he addressed us for the first time up at Skitten, 
he told us that we were about, we had been formed to carry out a mission which he described as dangerous. He didn't say what it was, he just said it was a dangerous mission. And if any member present decided they didn't want to carry on participating in this mission, they could step out immediately, they would be returned to the unit from which they came without any stain on their character, which was to defy any of us, 40 of us sitting in the room, to stand up and say, I'm out. Because probably if one of us said, I'm out, 39 Everyone would try this. So we all sat silent until we found out what this dangerous mission was. And that was a point you, at which we learned about the turpits. But you must have had a lump in your stomach at that point, didn't you? More than a lump, yes. Feeling <laughs> 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 of absolute horror. I can imagine. Crikey. <laughs> it's only then, of course, once the realism hit and we got down to looking at charts and doing some calculations as we've spent hours and hours in the operations room. Every time we sat down to do some more work, horror story increased. Uh, and of course, we didn't know, we hadn't seen what this new weapon was. We knew it was untried. We knew that the aircraft had to be modified. And we waited and waited until eventually one aircraft appeared with a hole where the Bombay had bomb doors had been taken off and we wondered why that had that aircraft had been so modified and then eventually some wooden cases arrived and they unearthed a sample of this 36 inch diameter highball uh, two of which were put in tandem on the underside of the aircraft but we kept coming back to this problem of how are we going to do it and survive the idea would possibly be that we could go to an airfield in near Murmansk called Veinga, which had been used by Hamdens uh, in a previous year. But then they said, well, if we landed at Veinga, the Russians would probably take over the aircraft from us so that they could carry out the operation using our aircraft. Uh, what would happen to us? Well, you'd be kept as prisoners of war by the Russians. That didn't appeal at all. And in fact, of course, the uh, Russians took about 1,400 prisoners and were never heard of again. So then we, they said, well, you're going to go back and fly out, back out to sea. And the various ideas were put forward, which were as lunatic as you could imagine. One of which, for example, was that an aircraft carrier, or a Navy aircraft carrier, would be in that area outside Norway, we would fly out to the aircraft carrier, which would stop engines. Uh, we would then bail out above the near, nearly above the aircraft carrier, land in the sea, and the aircraft carrier would put out launches and pick us up. Two problems. One is that the Royal Navy didn't fancy in a sea that was infested by U-boats to be there stopping engines just to pick up a few RAF aircrew. An aircraft carrier was much more valuable than two or three RAF aircrew. It weren't even Royal Navy personnel, mind. Uh, and the other thing, of course, was the medical officers knew that uh, if we landed in the, the Arctic Circle, we might last two and a half minutes or three minutes in that frozen sea. Yeah. That didn't appear to be 
too good an idea. And several ideas like that came up. One of the most fantastic, though, was that we would fly down to Narvik, turn inland at Narvik, because there was a rail service that went from Narvik down to Bruno in Sweden. That was a weekly service. Uh, and we would fly down the rail track until we ran out of fuel, land on the treetops because it was pine forests all the way, land on the treetops. Then when the train came by, we would signal it and stop the train. Uh, that we'd be taken down to Sweden, interred in Stockholm, uh, uh, and uh, stock Sweden being neutral, and eventually might be returned what they call the Brighton Run. Yeah, that doesn't sound incredibly um, a safe option, has to be said. So put yourself then in the position, you're stuck up there, you can't write to anybody to tell them what you're doing, you can't sit in the mess and talk about it there, and you're contemplating all of those things, and as I said at the beginning, you were working out which way you were going to die, not how you were going to survive, because there was no way no way that anyone could have survived both the firepower of the Tirpitz lying alongside it was another battleship, the Lutzau, and they had six escorting destroyers within that same fjord. The firepower from those was formidable. Then you worked out, we tried to work out how 20 aircraft in formation could attack a 650-foot-wide ship uh, with bombs that bounced, because by then the water would be so turbulent that those bouncing bombs would veer off in any one any direction, as was proven when they lent one aircraft, one highball to the American Air Force and they flew it in a Maryland and it bounced and bounced up and destroyed the Maryland aircraft. The Americans were not impressed. So how you would do it was never fully uh, accomplished. We never had 20 aircraft to do the operation. Time went on. We heard on the radio that a, another squadron had attacked the Mona Dams that was the first indication that we had that there was another squadron called 617. Up till then, we had no knowledge of it whatsoever. Isn't that amazing? And I suppose at that point, then the sort of cat's out of the bag, isn't it? And, and Yeah. That's sort of the beginning of the end, really, isn't it? The beginning and the end. But we soldiered on because they were still believing that the problems that we were encountering could one way or another be solved. And... May became June, July, and August. And then, as I pointed out in my book, when a notice appeared in daily orders, when a corporal was offering dancing classes in the gymnasium, we thought we'd read, read the, reach the pits. <laughs> and we were then stood down uh, and sent away, dispersed. The whole of us were disbanded and sent away. And we were then sent to RAF Benson, to join 540 PRU squadron. Uh, and we were going to fly a lovely blue painted mosquito at 32,000 feet down to Egypt. Right. 
So we had our jabs and we had four days leave. We came back and said, right, we're ready to go. We flew this. We did a four-hour trip just to experience being at that height. Yeah. We got back and they said to Benson, what are you doing here? You should be at Aria Pradanak in Cornwall. We found out where Pradanak was. We got a lift down there. And then we found that we were part of 618 Special Detachment. And that's when we then found our new weapon, which was the Mark 18 Mosquito with a six-pounder anti-aircraft, uh, anti-tank gun. Wow. In there. And that became then the next secret venture. But that in, that in itself was a wizard. <laughs> so, John, just to, just tell me briefly, um, you know, how does the... How do people realise, you know, how do the, the good folk at de Havilland's, how do they start to twig that actually the mosquito is so versatile it can be used in a number of different different roles? Or is that not de Havilland that's driving that? Is that actually the Air Ministry? It's a combination of the two, really. And also because, you know, the basic design was brilliant, you know, that you're able to, to do these various missions. Um, so very early on in, in, the, in the trials, they were doing the speed test against Mark 1 Spitfire of the day. And you could see then that the unarmed bomber side photo reconnaissance role was there. RAF and Freeman especially knew that the bomber missions would come once they saw the success of the photo recon. Right. And of course, there's no greater advocate of getting the aircraft developed than the air crews and the Air Force themselves into doing that. So very quickly followed was the, the B Mark IV, the Bomber IV, the, that went to service with, uh, I think, 105 or 109 Squadron in, in World War II. And, you know, again, and, and they started to do some very famous raids. In particular, um, they upset the 10th anniversary of the Nazi party in Berlin <laughs> by not doing one, but two, like, day, daylight raids, only three aircraft in each flight, yeah. minimal damage, but of course, it kept Goering and Goebbels off the air to celebrate the Nazi party birthday. That's right, yeah. Which got famous Goebbels. I turned green with Emu and I said, skeet in the air and led him to say to every Luftwaffe, every mosquito you shoot down, I give you two kills. Yes. Not one, two kills. So that was that was interesting. So then, then of course, the RAF said, can it do other things? So very quickly, the night fighter was developed and there were always was a a fighter version in the pipeline planning with the Havilands because I saw, as Des said, the bow fighter was doing a similar role as well. And the design was that the nose could be converted. Instead of having a beautiful plexiglass nose for the bomb aimer, you could then fill that with four 303 Brownings in the front, but also underneath, yes, cut back a little bit on the uh, bomb bay, but the bombs, they could still carry four 250-pounders underneath in the Bombay, but then you suddenly got four 20 millimeter Hispano cannon. And, you know, that plus the Brownings, wow, that's a heavy hitting yeah, yeah, absolutely. thing. And of course, the other secret weapon we were developing was not carrots, as Cat's Eye Cunningham said, another famous uh, bow fighter, night fighter ace, was the fact that on the electronic warfare side, we were developing airborne interception radar, yes. AI. And so they could easily fit the early radar as well into the Mosquito. So suddenly you've got a, a reconnaissance plane, a bomber plane, a night fighter. So very quickly after that, the RAF said, well, they understood they were going to go on to uh, offensive strikes as well. 
So they developed the fighter bomber as well very, very quickly in 42-43. So suddenly they realized the airframes was, the design was so good, there's so adaptability there to get this. And they had then the first multi-role combat airplane. And this is, for me, the Mosquito is the, I don't know, the grand lady or the grandfather or what they were, or great-grandfather of today's F-35 and Typhoon. Yeah, fleet. absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 it started the term precision strike uh well john and des thank you so much for joining us today um uh people i'm glad to say that that is only part one of um our mosquito special so um des will be back to to tell us a little bit more about the rest of his adventures in the war for now cheerio everyone and thank you for listening